All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are, Theology on Mission Lectureship. I am here in Oak Park. We are moments away. We may be hours away. Definitely not days away, but hours away from the from the Theology on Mission. Oh, I screwed it up. Is it Theology, theology and? Uh, theology and Mission Lectures. Yeah, we've only been doing this for 15 years. Yeah, um, yeah. Theology and Mission Lectures, and we're excited uh, to hear from our guest, which we'll introduce in a moment. Uh, you've had a busy week, eh, this week? It's been a busy week. We had You're the busiest man in America this week. <laughs> I take that. Uh, next week, I will not be the busiest, busiest man, but we have about 30 students on campus. Um, M-A-T-M for the most part. That's right. Greg Boyd's teaching. There's uh, an M-A-N-T, which, by the way, if you don't know, folks, it's the M-A New Testament, M-A Theology and Mission Programs. Yes. Uh, which one do you think is better? No, that's well, to- totally inappropriate. I direct, yeah, I direct one of them. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so we have students here. We have the lectures tonight. We have commencement, graduation, a bunch of celebrations and parties. So it, it, it's a great week. It's, it is the best week of the year. Last night, we had 30 students over at the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. And we had amazing conversations. Yeah, it was great. And most of them weren't about theology. <laughs> no. Most of them were about life, and it was fabulous. Yeah. So uh, anyways, uh, so good that you're surviving. you still got a few more days to go. Yes. Anyways, we have an amazing guest with us on the podcast today, um, and she is the uh, Brady Theology and Mission Lectureship for today, for tonight, for tomorrow. Her name is Sarah Coakley. Sarah Coakley. Did you hear what I just said, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Sarah, the famous world-renowned theologian, Sarah Coakley. I'm kind of excited about this. She has previously taught at Oxford, Princeton, Harvard, recently retired from the University of Cambridge. Her work, and we're going to talk about it here in a minute, her work in Trinitarian theology is ground... I should tell you, Sarah, sometime uh, about... Uh, uh, I was teaching Trinity... Th- Trinitarian theology like 20 years ago and someone said you don't have Sarah Coakley in the class syllabus are you crazy and I go well maybe I went to the wrong school but anyways uh, and and her other work is so by the way do you know how to pronounce Gregory of Nyssa uh, Mike I, I, Moore we were just given a lesson but I it's was not, not Nyssa I was not paying attention <laughs> okay and now I even forgot Okay, we're, 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 I'm getting the sign to like get on with it. Uh, no, I, th- I think that was a thumbs up. That was, a, that was oh, an affirmative. Oh, that, that was, was Sarah telling up. me I actually pronounced it right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, folks, I grew up in the humble parts of Canada, Hamilton, Ontario, and we didn't learn Latin or anything else. Uh, we did learn French. But anyways, uh, Sarah, so great to have you here in Chicago at Northern Seminary. Welcome to Northern Seminary. Uh, where did you come from uh, uh, last night when you arrived? Just immediately from D.C. because um, I have an American husband of nearly 50 years and we have retired to the D.C. area, uh, uh, though we still spend our summers in England. I, I know we're supposed to be talking theology, Mike Moore, but Sarah, why did you marry an American for Nyssa? <laughs> I fell in love with him. You <laughs> fell in love with him. Look, did Gregory of Nyssa have anything to do with it? Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> we were actually mutually introduced by the famous or infamous liberal Anglican Bishop John Robinson. Oh, you're kidding me. Um, And later married by him. Folks, you don't get information like this on any other podcast. (laughs) That is amazing. Uh, Wasn't John Robinson in New York? 
Uh, well, he often came over to lecture, but he he was Bishop of Woolwich in South London in the time that he wrote the famous Honest to God that rocked the Church of England. He then became the Dean of Trinity College, Cambridge, which is where I met my husband through him. Hmm. But I'd previously known him in South London. Uh, actually, Honest to God was one of the very first theological books I read. I read it when I was age 12 when it wow. came out. Um, and his daughters were at school with me. Yeah. And uh, he came to our school on one Ascension Day in 1962, I think, and uh, preached a very demythologizing um, sermon about the um, Ascension yeah. and was never invited again. <laughs> <laughs> but you <laughs> remember was, it. I remember it. I remember every word of it. It was wow. extremely exciting and This was exciting to you, it this was. demythologizing of the Ascension. Yes. Because who has not wondered what actually happened at the Ascension? Uh, certainly I did at the age yeah. of 10. Well, yeah, I just say, I, I think I've wondered about it now, but at the age 10, I was wondering about many different things. <laughs> um, I wasn't necessarily convinced by what he said, but I'd never heard oh. of demythologization. That was the first time I, I heard of Rudolf Bultmann. I don't mm -hmm. think I was allowed to read John Robinson when I was 12 years old. Yeah, well, probably not. Um, okay, I'm, this, is, this is just... This is just bad, crass Fitch now, but have you ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Yes, I've heard of him. I You've can't quote him. When I was 12, I was reading Francis Schaeffer, <laughs> and you were reading John Robinson. All right. Well, I won't tell you what I was reading when I was 12. <laughs> and I think we've both come a long way since. <laughs> yes. Praise the Lord. All right, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your theological method. I want to introduce people to your theology. And you have this method, I think you call it theology total. How did I say that? I, I think you're I think you're off. Okay, you're from Michigan and I don't want to trust your theology French, but, total. But could you explain that to us a little well, bit? Well, isn't it pretentious to have a French word for your method? But there's a reason for it. Yeah. Um, there's also a danger of misunderstanding the overtones of total. The reason for it is this. There was in the 70s a very interesting movement in French historiography called the Annal School or uh, l'histoire totale. And the idea of this method was that instead of studying the past only through the documents of the elite, you would actually look at the whole texture of culture insofar as you could reconstruct it whether through artifacts or um, stories or music or whatever, whatever way you could get your hands on oral tradition, for instance, you would use so that you could begin to understand the full um, richness and complexity and paradoxicality of a culture at any given time. That is fabulous. And so I was inspired by that to think, what if we did theology and particularly academic theology, not simply studying the texts of the elites um, and their reflections on Bible and tradition. But mm -hmm. if we actually looked at what's going on in our contemporary scene and use social mm -hmm. science methods to interrogate it. Mm -hmm. um, this, of course, in a way was already signaled, you might say, in the Schleimacherian tradition um, at the Enlightenment because Schleimacher wanted to unpack the religious consciousness, as he put it, yes. of, his, of his generation. But my method should not be confused, it often is actually, with a kind of Schleimacherian experientialism. I'm not a naive experientialist. 
I'm not even that kind of feminist theologian that wants to talk about experience as if you could hypostasize it as something, as it were, alongside scripture, reason, and tradition and turn it into the governing feature of, of the was, theological outcome. That was a outcome. Methodist move, wasn't it? That that was, <laughs> <laughs> Methodists <laughs> think I'm wonderful, but then when they discover that I'm not quite doing yes. what they think I'm doing, yes. they get a little chastened. So, but what I, what I was after here, and it was very controversial when I first started to do this, was how about if you sort of go out with the equipment that we're using now and interview people on the ground mm. about who aren't, who aren't, you know, trained theologians, but are religious people. Interview them about what's animating their religious faith, what actually excites and transforms them, what bores them, what, what makes them want to change the world or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into a sort of track of this because at the time I was teaching at the University of Lancaster in Northern England, which was the first religious studies department in England. And therefore, we had plenty of really good, rich social t- scientists working there, and they were able to teach me the methods. But at the same time, they were able to show me, because it was just a kind of turning moment within sociology and anthropology itself at that time, that sociology and anthropology didn't have to be religiously reductive. Uh, it had been in its origins, and it still is in many hands, but it didn't have to be. In other words, you didn't have to go with your microphone assuming that religious people were kind of rather strange like ants and could be observed from a distance as if their beliefs and practices were clearly weird and misdirected and could be explained in other terms. So this is now actually quite commonplace. There's been you know, a major move in the relationships between the anthropology of, of Christianity and theological studies. But 30 years ago, it was, it was new and on both sides of the of the past, theology and anthropology, it was regarded with a great deal of suspicion. That's amazing. Um, had you had you seen any, anybody else do that before you wrote your first volume? Not as such. No, mm-hmm. I wrote the the chapter that's in the first volume of Systematics on pneumatology right. um, in Lancaster, which is where I was living at the time, comparing uh, charismatics who remained within the Church of England and those who left it to become independents. Um, uh, was, I think, the first kind of study of that sort done by a theologian. Mm. And what made it controversial was that, um, I th- having done the study, I then drew theological conclusions, not merely right. reductive sociological conclusions. And that was first published in a document that was um, commissioned by the Church of England uh, Doctrine Commission that had been asked to report on charismatics in the Church of England, who at the time were causing a bit of trouble. Uh, And I remember being one of only two members of the commission who was really resistant to the idea that this charismatic movement needed kind of killing off. Um, Because the more I I investigated these extraordinary people and became friends with many of them, the more impressed I was by them. Um, And it really transformed my whole pneumatology, which I think is quite a distinctive feature of my theology. Okay, Uh, just that last couple of sentences. So you get to know charismatic people who've challenged the way you think about uh, pneumatology and that kind of really changed the way you do theology. Did I just get that right? Yes, you did. That's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely amazing to think that academic theologians of stature can be affected by everyday people's and, and charismatic. That's, I, I, I love that thought, and I, I, I would like to... I remember Brian Gerrish, uh, who's still alive and very eminent uh, 
theologian here at the University of Chicago, yes. who influenced me greatly as well as a young theologian. And when I told him I was up to this, he said, you're only going to get some very embarrassing results. Ah. And I said, you know, embarrassments, yes. I mean, some of the people I met didn't really understand the historic conciliar doctrine of the Trinity. But riches, yes. Mm -hmm. Transformative riches. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's great. Okay, Uh, uh, when I think of Sarah Coakley, I think of a couple of things. I think of uh, how you think about... uh, uh, desire and the structure of desire and you challenge sort of modernist understandings of desire. I think how you, the contemplative prayer thing, I probably shouldn't call it in front of Sarah Coakley, the <laughs> contemplative prayer thing. But I think she uh, understands what you're saying. <laughs> but it's that whole idea that this is not, not only a personally transformative experience, there's some, some kind of a resistant force to that practice, and is it fair to say there's a social power that comes in the in the practice of contemplative prayer? Anyways, and then I, I think of of so, so folks, uh, God's sexuality and the self. Uh, you wrote a little book called the new. Well, it's it's a group of essays, the new asceticism. Those are good places to start to understand everything I'm saying. But how do these things that I just mentioned kind of intertwine and form the the nexus of your theology? Well. You have to go to God's sexuality in the self, the first two chapters, for me, finally, after 20 years or so of struggle about my method, that I get it out on the table. And um, it's so subject to misinterpretation that, um, if I may, I will name some of the things that it isn't. (laughs) May I? Um, um, So I've already mentioned one of the things that this method isn't, isn't. It isn't just a kind of introspective attention to my experience Mm -hmm. in order to make that the final court of theological authority over against scripture Uh, (laughs) and tradition. Can we stop right there? Uh, (laughs) Say that. uh, This is, look, we have spiritual formation craziness. Mm. I, I better be careful. I'm going to make a lot of my friends angry at me. We have this obsession with spiritual formation as the answer to all our problems. And it does seem to me to turn into introspection and analysis of my own mm. personal experience. You just said it's not that. It's not that in the way that, broadly speaking, in Protestant America, it has come to me. Because anyone who spent any time on their knees in attentive silence, this is not an elite undertaking. That's another problem, yeah. misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, anyone who spent even five minutes on their knees in attentive silence will know how absolutely disconcerting this undertaking is. It's not so much an experience, it's an activity, or an activity of being worked upon, hmm. of being worked upon by the ground of my own being, of that without which I would not exist at all. Yeah. And it, so it is reconnecting to the very source of my existence. Hmm. And although, of course, you can't say that's not an experience, you know, experience in a way is all-consuming. Everything we do is experiential in one not very exciting sense. But it's not a, what I might call the Jamesian experience. It's, it's not looking for some, as it were, identifiable, specific something that is affective and um, somehow changes my perspective on things. 
it's not looking for anything except God. <laughs> that's what's so disconcerting. Um, and so that's one misunderstanding that my method is about introspective experience in the sense that American Protestantism has come to mean it. Um, it's not that, nor is it an escape from the realities of either politics or institutional church life. We've all heard about spirituality over religion, all right? People who want to have a, a very active prayer or contemplative life in order to avoid engaging with the annoyances of the church. The church is indeed at times very annoying, but it is what Jesus gave us to do, right. and we have right. to engage with it. And it's very painful and costly. Um, so it's not anti-institutional, and let alone apolitical. It's not an attempt to escape where we are placed contextually and what we struggle with um, and what we're given to do by God in any political circumstance. So you have to clear away all this baggage when you start to talk about contemplation simply as an act of radical attention, For first and foremost to God. As when the psalmist said, O oh Lord, open thou my lips, <laughs> right? It's God who opens the lips, and we who attend. We then start to take part in that great exchange, which is the act of worship and attention to the source of our being. So what I'm trying to do is not very novel. I'm trying to get back to a method in theology that animated many of the early fathers and particularly the early monastics and ascetics. It's a method of theology um, where someone called Evagrius Ponticus in the fourth century famously said, uh, the theologian is the one who prays, and the one who prays is the theologian. Mm. It's, it's, it's integrating those two activities. And once you start to ask what difference does that make to theology, then a lot more of my method starts to jump out of the box. Because once you start attending radically, first to God and then to others. Of course you want to attend radically mm -hmm. to what other religious people are undergoing, yeah. and particularly those on the margins who are not otherwise going to be heard. And so it's another feature of this method, very controversial in the seminaries, that I want to break down the much vaunted divide between contextual uh, liberation practical theology on the one hand and systematic theology on the other. Yeah. Because if systematic theology has become disconnected from the agonies of life, then it isn't proper systematic theology. It certainly isn't theology that's attending to the, what I call the total picture. So one of the problems with this term total is that people hear it as totalizing, <laughs> in other words, as excluding. Yes. That was a danger that I knew I was taking on in using this term. In fact, what it means is including, not excluding. Um, and what it's trying to say is that if, if there is any systematic theology worthy of the name, then it should be attending to these identity voices, <laughs> which of course initially have to assert themselves over against <laughs> But if they remain simply over against, then the churches can't even receive them properly with, into mainstream thinking. That, well, that, uh, folks, uh, mm -hmm. play that back about two or three times because <laughs> there's a, so much there. Mm -hmm. 
before we go into some of the practicalities that you're talking mm-hmm. about that we're going to be addressing in these lectures, uh, desire. Mm-hmm. You have a particular role, understanding of desire, and the, what, what it plays in your theology. And I don't think it's uh, at least, uh, I think it's, it, it, it's contrasting to the stereotype of the way we think about desire in the United States of America. Can you tell us this, what this construal of desire is and what role it plays in your theology? Yes, I'll do my best quickly. So if you think about the category of desire and for a moment step back from the way that it's been sexualized almost entirely in a post-Freudian world, um, desire is a kind of longing that combines both physical and psychic um, propulsions. The newborn child is born desiring. The newborn child can't speak. (laughs) The dying person often cannot speak, but is still desiring. It is a most fundamental category that conjoins all aspects of our selfhood um, in a form of longing either for very specific necessarily necessary nutrients and goods for life food and drink um, uh, social interaction um, and then goes on as it's developed through life to include of course sexual desires desires for power desires for money uh, desires for fame and corrupting desires addictions Um, desires to control and dominate, and so on and so forth. So it is a constellating category of selfhood. And in my view, it is actually the most fundamental root of selfhood. And again, I'm not alone in saying this, because uh, some of the great early Eastern theologians in particular, who were very strongly influenced by the Platonic notion of eros, which also constellates all those notions, um, wove it in to their Christian theology of agape, which they received from Jesus. And they didn't see these two as contrasting and disjunctive, as famous Lutheran theologies such as that of Anders Nygren have done. And, and just, just for the audience, uh, most of us pronounce that Anders Nygren, but that's not the way to pronounce his name. <laughs> Anders Nygren wrote a very famous book in the wartime period called Agape and Eros, yes. in which he strongly contrasted the outgoing, selfless love of Jesus with the nasty, grasping, self-interested um, uh, erotic longing of platonic eros. He was quite a good interpreter of Jesus. He was a terrible interpreter of Plato. And therefore, he couldn't see that through the lens of the early monks in the East and the early commentators such as the Cappadocian fathers that these two notions actually were enormously mutually um, uh, infective um, and significant for thinking through our anthropology. So someone like Gregory of Nyssa, whom you already mentioned, was one of the great reflectors on the notion of desire in the late fourth century. He thought desire goes on even after death, that it's a stretching out of ourselves towards God that finds its completion only in God and is perfect precisely in never arriving. So he redefined the Platonic notion of desire as perfect in its arriving by saying, no, in the case of God, who is beyond all comprehension, the perfection resides in this ecstatic reaching out. 
So this has very much informed my yeah. early thinking about desire. I think it, 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 it also acts as a kind of ascetic critique of the way that we are currently thinking about desire in the Anglo-American world, um, which, as I mentioned, has not only been highly sexualized, um, but also has become boxed up as a sexual notion from all our other animating loggings, yeah. and particularly from our final and original animating longing for God in God's self. And once we put all our other desires, including our sexual desires, back into the same realm as our longing for God, then we already have, as it were, an ethics of virtue and of sorting desires up and running, which has a very ancient heritage. Um, of course, this was also run through the Western scholastics. So Thomas Aquinas had a very sophisticated view of desire as being a standing as an appetite between bodily desire and rational desire. And for him, rational desire actually was the scholastic notion of will, closely connected to the intellect. So he has a slightly different way of mapping where desire lives. I have a more kind of all-consuming notion of desire, which owes its greater roots, I think, to the Greek and, East. And there you had, a, there, there folks, you just had a PhD in understanding <laughs> the origins and deconstruction of desire. Uh, and, if, and if you want to do a PhD, if you want to do anything in the area of desire, most of us are really confused about desire mm. in American culture. Yeah. Most of us are living in a world that just assumes desire is natural, kind of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, peel away the, the layers and let oh. yourself be free mm. and express yourself desire. And that's mm. true desire. Most of us have no construal of how how desires formed or shaped or or worked within the whole constellation that you described mm. as desire. So you got to go through Sarah Coakley when you say <laughs> Mike Moore if you're going to study desire. Yes, yeah, that that'll be on your reading list. That'll be it's already on our reading list. Uh, you you know we're we're running out of time. So one one last question. I mean you are you are getting into the weeds. <clears throat> in the lectures for tonight and tomorrow night. And mm -hmm. folks, if you can't get to the lectures, and by the time you hear this podcast, they will be over, You're, we're going to have them on, on tape or, or recording? Yeah, or? I don't know about oh, that. Oh, we're not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we're not? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. We're not, folks, so you are missing out. Um, no, but, but there's... Uh, I can't even read my writing right now. Uh, but uh, there is this notion... Uh, I think you're quoting... Vincent Lloyd, but I can't remember and I can't read my notes right now. Folks, this is how you come prepared with a world-renowned theologian. Uh, you can't read your own notes. Uh, but Vincent Lloyd said something like, uh, racism, we treat racism as a political problem, not a moral problem. Mm -hmm. And and tonight and tomorrow, tomorrow morning, you're going to be talking about uh, the relationship of racism uh, to sin mm -hmm to desire and you're kind of you're kind of asking us to look at it in some new ways can you summarize for us why those three things must come together i, re I agree it's very it seems very confusing in the current political circumstances um so very quickly what i want to argue first in the first lecture is that we are got stuck at the moment in a, a new politicized racialized binary in this country which has rather understandably arisen in the crisis of the post-George Floyd murder, whereby um, instead of rejoicing in a happy multiculturalism and um, 
colorblindness, there's been a quite right reaction against that in which um, the black community wants to reassert its separateness and its difference from the white community as an essentially white supremacist entity. And this, of course, is causing major divisions. On the one hand, um, many liberal whites, as it were, succumb to this because they want to accept that they have so much to learn, and, but then get stuck in a kind of self-flagellation. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, um, the right uh, reacts against this with a very uh, strong form of denial. Um, and this is tied up with lots of new historiography about the origins of racism in this country. Now, if, if that's described where we are, I think everyone will recognize those tendencies. I think what most people haven't noticed is that the way this is being politicized is leaving us probably more divided than we were even before the civil rights movement. First, we had the civil rights movement, which drew us together with a great project of hope in which we could overcome our divisions through education and advantage and a transformation of the uh, previously segregated, segregated country. Then that seemed not to work. Then we overlaid that with this multicultural fantasy, which has now been punctured. So where are we? That's the context. Mm. Now, in my view, we have to approach this theologically. It was theology that produced a particular ideology of racism in this country. That's an unacceptable to many acknowledgement, but it has to be acknowledged. And the justification for slavery and the justification for, us for the hierarchization of our culture was through biblical texts. Mm -hmm. So we have to go back to the very texts which produced this ideology. And the texts are almost all in Genesis. And the texts are about the very origins of sin. So I'm going back to tell a story again through Genesis about what happens in the story of sin, about the distortion of desire. But what I want to make very clear is that racism is not the primary moment of sin in the fall. The primary mode of sin is some kind of misaggregation of desire, which then leads into a secondary moment, that amazing moment from verse 9 on in Genesis 3, where everybody starts blaming everybody else. All right? That's a secondary and distinct moment. And that is the moment where this hierarchy of powers emerges. But I don't think it's the original moment. We actually need to, get to look back behind that at what caused the taking of the fruit, what caused the, uh, the separation between God and the human in the misaggregation of desire. It was not a false desire, in my view, to wish to know how to discern good and evil. That was a good desire. Mm -hmm. The question was how it was done. And then what the outcomes were. Now, I'm no fundamentalist, as will probably be clear, but I think this text is one of the most amazing stories in, in the history of the human race. And it is so generative. And it, there's been no unanimity on its interpretation in the Christian right. tradition. Never. We tend to think we know what it means because we've all read Augustine or one part of him. Mm -hmm. He had five goes at it and he never worked it out. He admitted it. <laughs> but what if we looked at the other renditions of it and thought again? All the renditions, however, East and West, agree that at the crux of this is something going wrong with desire. 
And so one of the things I really want to suggest is not only that at the root of our troubles with racism, specifically in this country, is a particular way of reading Genesis, but also that what went wrong with desire is crucially part and in, indeed core to what went wrong in racism. But it's not the original moment. If it were the original moment, we would agree with many rather careless commentators that racism is original sin. And if we agree that racism is original sin, that's really bothersome because it means that there's nothing behind and beyond that to which we can reach back in Christ for it to be undone. So we've got to get clear about this, um, about what exactly is the fundamental problem in sin, how it leads to racist and indeed patriarchal moments in our cultures, and then what is the response to it through the undoing of misdirected or misaggregated desires. That's... that's uh uh, th that, by the way, you still have to listen to the lecture. <laughs> that was an amazing summary of, yes. of how you're putting the problem together. Are you publishing something uh, on all this? Is it coming? Yes, out? I've been trying for ten years to write this second volume of my systematics, and um, I wasn't going to like mention it. Uh, no, um, <laughs> and it's it, it's another feature of my systematics that. I constantly write it and tear it up. I describe it as a systematics in via because <laughs> by definition, if you're always listening to what is coming at you in the spirit yes. and from others, you keep changing your mind. And I have to say that I had a full uh, draft of this before George Floyd. And I, oh, just wow. and I had just come back into this country oh, wow. after living 10 years in England, before that 15 mm. years in America. And I had to start again. Oh, wow. Um, and I've had to completely reframe it, as it were, to respond to where I think the political, as it were, propulsion in this country is at the moment, and where it's stuck in the churches, and how the churches have been a force for denial, and even their best practices, of course, have been a force for denial. But at their best, the churches are also that great force for hope and transformation. Yes. And I think there's tremendous, not just Afro-pessimism, but generic pessimism at the moment mm, about yeah. churches being able to help for oh, this yeah. at all. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why I go back to some of the great Afro-American authors who have refused that pessimism in this book. Supreme amongst them, Howard Thurman, yeah. who is often, I'm afraid, all too easily taken up by rather facile liberal white thinkers who think, oh, I love Howard Thurman because he's so... I thought so she was going to say Anabaptist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Episcopalians love him at the moment because he's so pacific, right? Yeah, yeah. But he, actually, he is one of the most radical thinkers. And, and you, you have to keep reading him till you see how radical he is. But he's also one of the most uh, spiritually demanding. And the spiritual demands he made upon himself to spend time in contemplation every day, to examine his own anger and mm. resentment mm. Um, as a leading black person in a segregated mm. world, is where you can learn more than almost from anyone, I think, in the last century about the agonies of American racism. Yeah, well, uh, we have to keep reading you again and again <laughs> to to get the full radical na nature of what you're doing in your theology. And so everybody out there who's listening, you got a taste. Uh, yes. and, I, and I don't feel like, um, I feel like you're, uh, you're frankly very substantive 
and um, demanding to read. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, one of the big complaints is uh, a good theology book that is well done will get, oh, if you, 5,000 readers, a bad piece of crap that's mad at somebody <laughs> will get 100,000 readers. Uh, but you are someone someone needs to spend time reading yep. and understanding if we're going to get anywhere out of the mess we're in in this culture mm-hmm. and the church and its witness. So we thank you so much for doing this podcast. Yeah. We thank you for coming to do in the lectures. On behalf of Northern Seminary, we're yes. really honored to have you. Do you have anything final to say on this podcast, Mike? No, Moore? other than uh, we shouldn't keep her too long because it sounds like she has a book to write. So. <laughs> yes, so we, we need that book badly, badly. Well, thank you both very much for your encouragement. Yes, uh, and may the Lord bless you in all these efforts. Folks, uh, it's been uh, a great podcast. Uh, it's in the middle of summer, but uh, we might get one or two in before... Yeah. Maybe one. We never know. Uh, <laughs> someone was complaining that to me about that uh, this week, that they never know when the next podcast yeah, is coming because we're so irregular. Tell them we don't know either. So. We got to do, we got to do something <laughs> better on that. But anyways, folks, good to be with you on behalf of Mike Moore, Dave Fitch, Sarah Coakley. It's over and out and we will see you next time. <laughs>